everyone. Welcome to Rock Bottom Syndicate. I'm your host, Joyce Strong. Rock Bottom Syndicate is about people who have a story to tell to inspire others. Uh, they've hit a rock bottom in their life and they have needed to figure out a way to pivot and adapt and, um, and uh, come out the other side with something bigger and better than what they went in with. So that's Rock bottoms happen. They happen again and again and again in our lives. And if you see these rock bottoms as opportunities, something beautiful can blossom from that. And that's what the case is with this guest um, today, Beth Sarath from caregiverspathways.com. And she is telling us about her story of taking care of her, her dad as he got sick after she got the call, um, suffered with dementia and some other conditions as well. And she explains how she navigated through the system and then took everything that she learned. Sometimes she calls it luck. I think it's much more than luck. But she was able to take all of that and put it into a form that is very usable and helpful for all of us in determining which path, which choice we want to uh, take when we're confronted with that situation. And preparation is key. So do enjoy this episode with Beth Sarath in caregiving, uh, caregivingpathways.com. Reach out to Beth. Reach out to me if you have questions. I really appreciate your coming on the show and supporting my, uh, my guests who are willing to come on and tell about their uh, trying times in their lives and their rock bottoms to inspire you to... Uh, handle whatever life throws your way. So enjoy this episode. Hey, Beth, welcome to Rock Bottom Syndicate. And uh, for my listeners, Beth Sarath. And um, Beth, you can find her at caregivingpathways.com. Um, Beth has an interesting story of her rock bottom to share that uh, relates to the care of her father and caregiving in general. She's actually started a business helping other people, and that is all going to be talked about in another episode of Totally Well on my other podcast, Totally Well Podcast, so make sure you tune into that. So welcome, Beth, and I'm very eager to hear uh, what happened to you that launched this um, career and ability to help so many people. Well, thank you for having me today, Joyce. I'm very happy to be here. I will uh, tell you the story of my dad. When my, uh, my mother had passed away, my dad had been living alone for several years, perfectly well, and one day we got the call. So he was in the hospital in Florida. I lived in New Jersey. My sister lived in New York. We hopped on a plane. We went down to see what was going on. And we had no idea that we had a role of any kind. We stood in the corner and tried to stay out of the way. And little by little, as we saw what happened and over multiple hospitalizations, we realized that there was a lot that we could do as the sort of central coordinators of his care. He, even on a good day, was unable to communicate in a way that healthcare providers, his doctors, nurses needed to hear. He would tell everybody he was perfectly fine. Oh, he had no health issues whatsoever. Well, he'd had diabetes for 15 years. And when we landed at the hospital, we were hit with the news that he had dementia and neuropathy. I had no idea what neuropathy was. And the dementia, my grandmother, his, my father's mother, had had dementia for 10 years. And my you know, most of my memory of her uh, during that period was in a wheelchair, not really talking. And so, yeah, but, and yet there was my dad looking sort of like the picture of health. So you had to sort through all of this 
and little by little realize that you do have a role. So once I realized that, and it still hadn't dawned on me that I should go look for some information about this, that this happens to other people. And this is the thing about family caregiving, especially when there's a medical crisis, you're so focused on, okay, what's the problem? How are we going to fix it? And all the yeah, stress that goes with that. And am I doing this right? And is there something else I should be doing that, um, you know, you're not looking outside of, of that. And eventually it dawned on me as we were in the hospital day after day and sort of looking at what other families were doing and realizing one, that there were not a lot of other families there and we were there. Yeah, it was quite shocking once I, and it took me a long time to realize that again, because I was so focused on my dad and keeping him well and happy and all that sort of thing. So eventually it dawned on me that uh, some information would be helpful. So I did eventually go looking for it. Mm -hmm. I could not find anything. And so I decided to create the information I wish somebody had handed me. Yeah. I was able to do that because my professional background was in healthcare marketing. And so I said, okay, you know, I, well, what I actually said was, I need to write a book about this. There's so much information. <laughs> it, it, it's a book. So I sat down and started to write the book and somebody said to me, could I just have the short version? <laughs> and I said, oh, gotcha. Okay. So that's when I decided to make a guide, okay. which I give away on my website. And but have I you have, written a book? Have you written a book? I have half a book done and 90% of a book proposal. So it's still in the works, but good, good. family caregiving slows down a lot of your projects. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad so, that that's coming because I, I, I think a book is helpful as well as the guide. So. Well, I, I look forward to the day that that comes out. But meanwhile, I have the short version of the guide that I give away on my website. I'm happy to have it shared far and wide. And it covers the basics of what your role is in the hospital and the things that you can do to make the hospital stay more productive um, so that you can give your doctors and nurses all of the information that will help them develop a, a care plan that takes into account all of the things about that, that person. So for my dad, he had, many doctors thought he had, was hard of hearing because he had trouble understanding what he perceived to be anybody's accent. And I would have to constantly tell them he's not hard of hearing. He's just having a little trouble there and I'm going to help him understand as a result. Also, uh, his dementia, even as it worsened and even at the end when it was very, very bad, he could fool doctor after doctor who didn't dig to see that he really did have advanced dementia. Yeah. And even when he, in the beginning, when they did a scan of his brain and they said, oh, he has this terrible dementia, he can no longer live alone, you know, all these things. And we were sent, and I talked to my dad every single day at five o'clock for eight years after my mother died. I, and my, my sister and I visited him regularly. We knew what his deal was. And for somebody to say to us, your father need, you know, can't live alone. We said, well, uh, you know, have you talked to him? <laughs> so once they sort of met the man and looked at the scans and they said, this, these don't match up, but I have to go with the man I'm talking to in front of me. I said, okay, good. So, you know, a lot of things. And again, I was the connector piece. Yeah. If they had gone just by what they saw on the scan and in his chart, it's a very different experience from getting all the background from the family. 
Yeah. So I you know, learned that along the way. And there just are errors. There are human errors. And if you're the one who's watching, you know, day to day, you're um, and, and watching trends. So I learned to write everything down in the hospital. And, and when something seemed amiss, I could sort of flip back in my notebook and see what the trend was and realize that something was out of whack. So anyway, fast forward uh, over several years and many hospital stays and rehab stays. And, and my sister and I got this down pat. So yeah, we were really good at this. And we were really, really lucky in the stress department that we, there were two of us and we were on the same page and we took turns when needed, long term, short term. So I really was so very lucky in terms of uh, the stress part of that where, you know, I sure shared what needed to be done with my sister. We had a great time together. A lot of the time we had together with my dad, we had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he wasn't interested in having us care for him. So we had to kind of disguise it as, you know, we're coming to visit a lot. And, hey, we're going to do these great fun things while we're there and sort of sneak in the, <laughs> okay, so we're going to the doctor tomorrow. Uh, you know, things like that, especially as his dementia progressed. And, you know, he didn't want to acknowledge that he had dementia or that it was as bad as it was. So all those challenges along the way. Yeah. But the rock bottom piece of all this came when eventually he was diagnosed with two cancers uh, in his neck, just kind of under his jawline. Mm -hmm. And we were told that he needed two surgeries to remove these. So he was uh, in his mid eighties. He didn't remember my mother. He'd been happily married to for 50 years. Uh, He had no real quality of life to be looking forward to. And he was heading toward, and my mother had been a nurse. And there was a lot of discussion in our family about how people wanted to die and how they didn't want to die. So this was well-established right out there. Uh, We knew he absolutely did not want this situation where he's clearly near the end of life and he's going into the hospital and he's going to be hooked up to tubes and then die in the hospital, especially, you know, possibly alone. Mm -hmm. So this is the, the specter that we saw coming and we were scared we didn't let on to dad. We said, okay, you know, we're just going to sort of see what we can figure out. But those were three of the worst days of my life, figuring that out. So the recommendation for the two surgeries, uh, when I called the next day, you know, after we sort of digested that for a little bit, and I didn't think my father was physically capable of withstanding two surgeries, maybe he would make it through one. So wanted to find out all the ins and outs of this, what was involved, uh, what was the the likelihood of survival, was it really going to solve the problem? And eventually when uh, I asked, sort of, you know, got through the nitty gritty of the conversation with the surgeon who just wanted me to take his advice and move forward, which I understand, he knew how to fix it from his perspective. Yeah. A valuable lesson I learned. Everybody who fixes a problem fixes it from their perspective. He was a surgeon. He was only looking at how to solve this surgically because that's what he does. So he wasn't looking at other options. And here I was trying to see if there were any. So he told me that if we did not have these surgeries, that my father was going to die a gruesome death. Words I will never forget hearing. 
And then the next day when I called his office back to ask some further questions, the nurse told me the exact same thing. He will die a gruesome death if you don't have these surgeries. And that's when I thought, okay, wait a minute. This doesn't seem right. And you know, this is sort of the, seems to be the party line. Mm -hmm. And I need a different perspective on all this. Yeah. And it was uh, one of the aides, a fabulous person who helped us take care of my dad, who said to me, I know an oncologist and he's got cancer. And have you talked to an oncologist? If you don't have one, I recommend you talk to this fellow I know. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh my gosh, of course we should be talking to an oncologist. He's got cancer. But nobody had in the, in the medical community had suggested that to us, yeah. which now to me is mind boggling. So uh, we went to the oncologist with my dad and we explained his, his situation, his lifelong desire not to have uh, his life end the way it looked like it was about to. Mm -hmm. and uh, that we wanted, you know, sort of his perspective. Any different perspective was their different perspective. Mm -hmm. And he said, based on what you've told me and your father's lifelong expressed wishes and his current condition, outlook, prognosis, plus coupled with the fact that I had found out from the surgeon along the way that there was really actually only a 5% chance of actually completely curing the cancers in his neck mm -hmm. through the surgery. So put all that information together and the oncologist recommended we take my dad home, keep him comfortable and keep him home until the end came. That could be anywhere from 12 to 18 months. It was impossible to tell. And so completely different view of the world from where we had been for the previous three days, where I thought if he had the surgery, I was going to end up, I felt like I was going to kill him if I said yes, yeah. have the surgery. And if he didn't have the surgery, he was going to die and it was going to be possibly even worse. So for three days, it was, do I have my father die this horrible way or this horrible way? Yeah. Just awful. So thankfully we got to this wonderful oncologist who said, okay, you know, we all agreed, yes, this is the plan. Take him home, let him have a nice time while he's feeling good, mm -hmm. and keep him comfortable at the end. He wanted to be at home until he died, and that's what we did. Mm -hmm. So he introduced us to hospice. Hospice was there by 6 p.m. Now, I know everyone thinks hospice, oh my gosh, you're going to die, but as we have discussed, the end of life is part of life. It's coming. And to prepare for it will make all the difference. So my pet line is plan and prepare or react and regret. Mm -hmm. So we were lucky enough that we ended up with this oncologist who sent hospice in time, you know, not the last few days while he was actually actively dying, but in time to take the remaining time that he had, figure out how to use it, uh, let him have a nice time. You know, if he'd been, if his dementia had been a little less uh, advanced, he could have done more in terms of creating a, something like a legacy project, whether he wanted to write letters to his grandchildren or, um, you know, videos or a scrapbook or, you know, something like that or take people on one last trip. He loved to take people on trips. Yeah. But um, he, we did have a wonderful time. So what we actually did 
was we had a giant party for his entire neighborhood, which uh, was a very social community. Mm-hmm. And he could not, as I said, he couldn't remember my mother of 50 years, but he remembered for weeks beforehand the, the planning of this party. And for weeks afterward, when we went to the grocery store, he would make me tell the cashier all about this amazing party they had at his house. <laughs> and so this was this great uplifting a series of parties. So we had the big neighborhood party. We didn't tell anybody that my father had this prognosis or diagnosis even. We just said we were in the mood and we were. Yeah. And then little by little, we took different pockets of family uh, to visit him. So it wouldn't be too overwhelming. And, you know, so these three or four people for three days, and then, you know, the next week or two, these three or four people for three days Mm-hmm. And we had party after party. He had a wonderful time. <laughs> so a piece of this is that he didn't remember that he had this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So this was another sort of piece of the rock bottom. So after we did make the determination that we were going to go the hospice route and just keep him comfortable and have as nice a time as he could until the end. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorry, lost my train of thought there somewhere. So he didn't uh, remember. He, he didn't. Ah, yes, thank you. Yes. So you can see it's all very, you know, this is years later now, uh, several years later, but it's, it's all very overwhelming. Imagine being in it. It was just, you know, your, your mind doesn't think about anything else. Your mind doesn't work properly, which is why the planning and preparing beforehand when you're relaxed and not in crisis mode is so much better than when you're in crisis mode because you can't think straight. But anyway, so after we made the determination that he was going to, um, come home and we would keep him comfortable. Uh, I said to him the next day, so dad, do you remember going to the doctor yesterday? And he kind of looked at me, which I knew meant he didn't remember. I said, oh, we talked to the doctor about those things in your neck. And, you know, basically telling him that he was, again, that he was going to die from these cancers. And And so this happened twice that day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. And he sat back in his chair and he goes, woof. And, I, and, and looked at me like, you know, so, so after telling him multiple times that this was the situation, by the third time, the next day, wait, I said it again in the morning, said, you know, maybe it's the next day. We'll see if, you know, there's any inkling of any memory about this. Nothing. So after three times of telling him that he had cancer that was going to be uh, bringing him to the end of his life, I said, my sister and I said, no more. We're not telling him. And that's really when we shifted into party mode. <laughs> we said, okay. If, you know, we're not just going to sit here and sort of stare at him for who knows how long until this happens yeah. and who knew how long he would be comfortable or how long the active dying process would take. And so as it turned out, it really only took a few months. And uh, by the end, it, it really went very quickly. So we had the wonderful time. And then one day I had him uh, in the car going to the grocery store and he didn't want to get out of the car. Okay, fine. We went home. And the next day, he didn't really want to get up. The next day, he would not get out of bed. The next day, he wouldn't eat. The next day, he wouldn't drink. And in all, he went from being out to lunch on a Thursday to the following Thursday, he was gone. Wow. But he was comfortable the whole time. Yeah. Uh, it was, it, it, we were very lucky that we had uh, the wherewithal by that time to research what's a good death and, you know, how does this work? And 
and I, I would have done more even, um, but it didn't, again, I, you're in crisis mode. It's so much to handle. You, you, you don't do what your normal first impulse would be on a good day when you're not in panic mode. Yeah. And so there are some things maybe I would have done a little differently, but for the most part, we lucked out. Yeah. And we had the guidance of this wonderful oncologist. So I had no regret whatsoever, thankfully, yeah. which is hard to believe some days. It just, uh, and so I think of how much, how wrong it could have gone. And, and I think about another family I know in stark contrast where somebody who was my age, their mother had a diagnosis and was gone in four days. Mm-hmm. And nobody was prepared for anything. The goodbyes were terrible. Uh, it was all a horrible, horrible experience in direct contrast to the experience that we just really lucked out with, with my father. And so I use those two examples to say, you know, we got there by luck and, and I can help people get there. I've lived it. It does, you know, it does exist. The, the safely carrying, you know, carrying, not physically, but safely carrying the person through the end as that person wanted, uh, you know, it wasn't a horrible experience. It was, it was, we were taking such good care of him and getting him where he needed to go and getting him safely launched into eternity. And so that's how I look at it. And so, you know, this, this other way and and anywhere in between in the spectrum, you know, with even a little preparation, different medical decisions could have been made. Maybe they wouldn't have had that surgery that they had, Mm-hmm. Uh, decided to have where we decided not to. And so, you know, with, with a little realization of how the, the process can work and how the thought process will often go for people will take you such a long way so that when you get there, and especially with this end of life planning guide that I use with people, mm-hmm. it really walks you through a lot of the nitty gritty of, of the decision-making process of, uh, how to think about doing, you know, treating versus not treating. So for the most part, the medical community and we outside, I'm not a medical person, uh, people outside the medical community look at medicine as how to fix somebody, but there is a time in life to move from fixing to just helping them to the end. Mm -hmm. And, the, the decision-making around that, the fact that decision-making around that exists is not something that is top of mind for really much of anybody. The medical establishment is not trained to talk to families that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, families are not trained to look for information like that. So the fact that I'm able to take the result of my experience and the result of other people's much more negative experiences and help people down the path that I just lucked out to have rather than any other path, you know, really is so rewarding for me. And, uh, and to see people who are facing the end of life with a loved one and are just in, in panic and, and they're stressed and they, they don't even know what to do or think about or how to proceed. And then a year later, after the person passes away, they'll realize uh, I, if I had just done this and you can't go back. Yeah. So I, my, I, I really view my job as preventing regret. Yeah. It's interesting to 
you say you lucked out. I think it was much more than luck. I think you really had a set of experiences in your life and a ability to see around corners in some ways. Um, and I, it, it makes me think about my experience with breast cancer, where I got breast cancer and I started going out to doctors to see um, what I should do about this, because I didn't know. But I am a nurse, and I do have a lot of education, and you know, I think I'm a pretty smart person. Um, and I kept thinking, if I'm having trouble with this, with all my background and preparedness and my personality being a little bit rebellious, a little bit pushing against the norm, right? Um, and in my one, one particular experience, I went into a big name hospital in Boston with a big name doctor who I always saw on TV. He was the one to go to. And he came in and told me what his plan was. And it was wrong. It wasn't right for me. And it wasn't right for a lot of people, I think, but he was the fix it guy. He was uh-huh. the surgeon, right? And he wanted to do what he does. And I started to cry and I was like, this isn't right for me, what you're saying. And then they turned me into a psych patient where, you know, I needed to be assigned a social worker and go get help because I wasn't listening to what, and I, uh, and I, it took every ounce of strength for me in, in engaging my personality of having two older brothers and always being the one to push back and my little toughness <laughs> and grit to fight back and finally figure out what I needed. But it, I was diagnosed in August, and it wasn't until November when I had my surgery, by the time I figured out who my doctors would be. And I traveled to New York and got denied for my health insurance three times before I actually got what I felt I needed, which so far, so good. That's been, what, 16 years now. So, But wow. it really resonates with me that being in that position of you're in your amygdala, right? You're in fight or flight everything is like, it's not all getting through and you're trying to make a decision and then adding insult to injury, having somebody tell you that you're, you're needing psychiatric support. They didn't give me drugs, but they probably would have if I was open to that. Um, you know what I mean? Instead of yes. just saying it's a choice. It's, you, you have more, you have choices here. Um, and you can, and that's ask, why, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I, I just, you can ask questions is what I said. Oh, so I, I will point out that that's why I called my company Caregiving Pathways, yeah. because there are so many different paths to take given a certain set of circumstances. It depends on the where you live. If you live in a rural area versus a city, the care that's available is different. Are you able to travel? Can you do you have financial resources to get that care? And even in you know the similar circumstances different people will take different paths. If I was 30 years old and had the cancers that my dad had, let's say my dad was 30 years old, he would have made different choices than we made with him slash for him with his dementia and in his mid eighties. So it's all very personal to the set of circumstances, to your preferences, your fears, your beliefs, so many aspects come into it that, and notice nothing that I've said even comes near the clinical part, which, so, you know, there's the the clinical expertise and then there's my expertise as the expert on my dad, uh, you know, who couldn't care for himself at that point. And even if he 
didn't have dementia, he's not a good historian medically, you know, or reporter on, on, on his situation. So it, 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 the family plays such an important role in all of that. And there are so many different ways to go depending on the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it certainly uh, strikes home with me with, you know, just thinking that mine wasn't end of life, although it could have been, I thought I was dying and, uh, you know, to make those decisions and just seeing, you know, how paternalistic the medical uh, care was and, and just so overbearing that I felt I couldn't say no. I felt like I was being, doing something wrong to to advocate for myself or ask, well, what are the other alternatives? So there aren't any, this is statistically what's going to happen. And so just like you said, he's going to die a gruesome death. That's the type of messaging I was getting for me that this is really, you'd be crazy to know you are crazy if you don't do what I'm telling you to do. And it turns out what they were telling me to do would have cost, it would have made them a lot more money. It would have, it would have just perpetuated. It was a big political thing. A lot of it had to do with money and politics. It was this whole political piece that I started to capture because they were wanting to shift me off to Louisiana to have surgery done. And I'm like, well, why can't I just drive to New York? Um, but then wow. I started to realize there was a lot of underpinnings to this um, that um, were completely out of my view at first. And um, so, yeah, this type of help is so powerful and um before it happens to be prepared, as you said. Yes. And I found that one of the most powerful ways to find out the things that you're talking about, uh, some of the underlying uh, in influences on care delivery or lack of thereof or you know, different care is, um, is to, you know, so different ways to try to find out about that. And one of the most effective is to, I would eventually, and I learned how to do this very carefully to ask Every clinical person who came in the room after they, you know, make sure the timing was good, inquired about how they were doing, you know, tried to establish some rapport and eventually leading up to a point where I could say, if this was your father, what would you do? Mm. Particularly when you're faced with uh, a difficult decision. So it's easy to, it's easier to say for somebody else, given what I know about that person, here's what I recommend. But it could be a very different thing when you say to somebody, what would you do if it was your dad? Because right now he's just one old guy in a bed. Yeah. But when it's your dad, it's a very different, and you see the the demeanor, people's facial expressions change. Every single time I asked a person that question and they would sort of think about the situation differently. Yeah. So I did that one day by accident because I was desperate to sort of figure out a plan about something. And when I saw that reaction, I thought, huh, I'll go and ask the next person who comes in here. I love question. it. Yeah. You know, when the timing is right and all that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, so sometimes you get the same answer, but you always got, there was always the stop and the thinking about it. And hmm, it was different. So yeah. I highly recommend that approach. Yeah, I remember asking that um, at one point in my care, and it was powerful. Their whole, their, you can see the. Um, ah, so, yep, you yeah. saw it too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really good tip. Well, uh, is there anything I didn't ask you today about your experience that you'd like to share? Uh, I think that we've pretty much covered the high points. I guess I will just tell you that. Um, 
the primary points that I, in the guide that I give away on my website um, are essentially to write everything down in the hospital. I highly recommend having a notebook Mm-hmm. that lives in the room with the patient. So whoever is there, whether the patient writes in it, the family writes in it, uh, a neighbor, if you know you're not going to make a, a certain doctor visit or you know test results are coming or, or they're just going to be there visiting and ask them to write down anything that they notice along the way uh, or you know anything that happens. So and being the compulsive information manager and sharer that I am, I wrote down everything. It just made me feel better. And it could be it could be things that seem not important at the time, but just documenting it. Right. And trying not to be a pain in the neck. So just sort of observing, okay, I see the blood pressure is this. And, you know, and so eventually you put together, okay, my dad's behaving, th- you know, so eventually we did put together. My dad's behaving this way. He probably has a, u- a urinary tract infection, a UTI. Mm-hmm. So we were able to clue in his doctors and nurses on the early side Hey, he's you know behaving this way, and in the past three times he's behaved that way. He had a UTI. Would you be able to alert the doctor? What you know, do a test, whatever. And so he would repeatedly have a UTI, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so documenting all those types of behaviors. That was when we were able to realize, oh, I, you know, we've seen that. Wait, wait, wait. This rings a bell. You flip back in the book, and you go, yep, that's got to be it, or you know, maybe that's it. Yeah. I um I interviewed a woman who's a she's a expert in communicating with the caregivers about dementia, um, and I she was it was really interesting because it kind of ties into what you were just saying. She she said I've seen people get frustrated with elderly um, when they like I want to go home, and they continue to say it, and the finally the family gets up frustrated and says, you are home. <laughs> and now it becomes a, a fight or a screaming match or frustration and, um, or just lack of respect for the, yes. the elderly person. And so what this expert told me was, um, her name's Deborah Beer. She told me it, it might be because of the damage in the brain, it might mean I want to help set the table. I want to be part of things. It might mean something else. And this is the only thing that they can say that they know how to say now to convey that. Um, And that just, it really struck me just that example of, you know, because of now the dementia doesn't mean that they're gone, but they're gone. You know, there some pieces are gone, their ability to communicate. Um, So. It is interesting. What is, what, is gone and what remains and you know but the family will the family who knows the person and who's paying attention this way might be able to pick up the nuances of what they really mean or maybe lost their peripheral vision and they actually don't see you coming in so they're not ignoring you they're just unable to see you so get in front and things like that and you know so two interesting things the things that disappear are more related to decision-making and memory and that sort of thing, but their feelings do not change. And they know when they're being, when they're not being respected, they know whether somebody is cares about them or that they're in a situation where nobody cares about them. And that induces fear. All of those basic human instincts are still intact. Yeah. Uh, But one interesting thing with my dad, so he was in a hospital in New York city. Uh, He was in a rural uh, community Florida Hospital, a trauma center in New Jersey, and one of the best medical centers in Manhattan. 
And one thing led to another, and he ended up on the VIP floor at one point. And I, that's when, the, as a result of, partially as a result of those experiences, I saw that the care is really not very different in, in different settings like that, mm-hmm. that there are some consist, there's a lot of consistency, some good, some not so good. But, um, but while he was there one day uh, in the New York City hospital, he, I came in one Sunday morning, super early, and he, he was never, ever able to use the buzzer to ring for help, which is why we had to be there all the time. Mm-hmm. Or, and plus, we wanted to be. But he was, had both hands under the covers. And he, if you spoke to him, he seemed perfectly fine, like he didn't have dementia. You know, hi, Dad, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. And I was trying to, again, get him to show him the buzzer just in case. But he had both hands under the blankets, and I said, okay, so you just hold on to this. And he just looked at me in perfect English, not, you know, it's like there was nothing wrong. And he said, he looked me in the eye and he said, I don't know what you want me to do. He couldn't even, he was so, his condition was such that he couldn't pull his, figure out that he needed to pull his hand out from under the blanket to hold on to the thing. Yeah. And so, but you know, the day before I was sort of showing him how to do it, ever hopeful. And so it is interesting how with dementia, things come and go. Uh, But, you know, the basic person is still there. And you could tell he felt terrible because he couldn't understand the instruction I was giving him. So he he couldn't, yeah, he couldn't get the instruction, but he knew that he was sort of failing me because I was trying to tell him something. I said, you know, don't worry about it. You know, we'll figure it out later or whatever. I said, you know, need to do this. So you relax. I'm going over here. Read my, you know, Sunday magazine, whatever. From the New York Times. And uh, that was that. Yeah. I have one quick story to tell you about. a. a, a I was doing these insurance physicals as sort of a side gig as a nurse and going into um, people's homes and nursing homes to assess. And I met this one woman who was physically, she could do cartwheels. She was amazing. Um, but she had no, and she was funny, but she had like no sense of like, Every she was in the present constantly, no sense of memory. Like I didn't, I, you know, I couldn't really like get my hands around who she was. And I asked the nursing staff, I'm like, what did she do for work? No one knew. And I had dealt just a little bit with the daughter, so I did all this testing stuff I had to do. And she couldn't draw a picture or write or anything, but I did give her a pen, and she wrote. She was writing, and it looked like scribbling, really. And I noticed a couple of symbols that were nursing script symbols, shorthand. Oh. And I said, you know, I asked her, were you a nurse? And then I don't even know if I had a very uh, uh, cohesive conversation with her from there. But I re- just remember speaking to the daughter afterward and really spending time with the daughter on the phone. I never met the daughter in person. And I said, you know, I think your mother was a nurse. Is that correct? And she was surprised that I knew. And, um, and I just felt so good to support the daughter in her, like she just wanted the best for her mom and just letting her know that, that somebody spent time with her and connected at that, that level was just very rewarding for me. So I can imagine, you know, a little bit about what it feels like to be you and doing what you do and how you can just make such a huge difference in someone's life. Yeah, I'll tell you one last fun story. So my dad actually was a spy in the Korean War. Oh, wow. And he told told this to one Russian doctor, and he he learned to, as he said, speak 
read, write, and type in shorthand. Russian. Yeah. Yeah. So a Russian doctor came in one day and then my dad said, oh, you're Russian. I was a spy in the war. I speak Russian. The doctor's looking at me like I said, speak to him in Russian, see what happens. They had this big conversation and the doctor's looking at me like, holy cow, you are, this is actually for real. And I said, yeah, never doubt a man in the hospital bed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. But yeah. yeah, so right then we were all cemented. We were all, you know, buddies and it was just a very different interaction. We were connected. Yeah. So yeah. Makes all the difference. Absolutely. Well, Beth, I really appreciate your sharing your personal story. And I know, you know, even though it's been some time now, it, it's, it comes back when we tell the story. I hope it helps it to share it with me and with our audience, because uh, that's one of the reasons I do this. I think when we share a story and we're kind of here together and just connecting and, and um, being part of the, uh, cataloging it or keeping keeping it in my history now now I know your story and it's part of me it just makes it come alive and I think I I think it helps the pain be less and gives purpose um to going forward I completely agree and thank you so much for sharing some of your story with me and thank you for having me today you're very welcome so just again for our listeners make sure that you listen to the totally well um, interview that we did a little bit more about the caregiving pathways um, support that Beth does and um, of course your story today and thank you to your dad um, for allowing us to uh, to tell his story as well and um, I'm glad that he had so many parties <laughs> he had a great time <laughs> yeah, yeah and that you did too Hey everyone, Joyce Strong back again just to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. I want to remind you that you can visit me at totalwellcoach.com, which links to all of my social media and my offerings, my Inner Circle membership, which is a an entry-level way to get involved, get coaching, and get all my classes for one low monthly fee. And if you want more, work with me one-on-one -on -one with intensive nutrition and lifestyle so that you can opt out of chronic disease, then get in touch with me and we'll talk about how that happens. We spend a lot of time together. I want you to join the one-on-one -on -one coaching if you're really committed to making a lifestyle change and you want a guide and a support and a friend to walk with you in this journey. You're going to do the work. I'm going to support you. Um, you already have what you need inside you to make these changes. So do reach out to me at totalwellcoach.com. I love it when you subscribe and share and comment on all my um, YouTube and on Apple Podcasts and all those places because it elevates my frequency and it gets more people to hear and see what I do. So please, 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 I really, it means the world to me if you would help support me that way because you're helping support my entire network. I'm here for you if you need me. So thanks again for tuning into the podcast and reach out. Love to hear you. Love to get your comments. Love to get your DMs. Love to get your emails. Any way I can help, let me know. That's what I'm here to do. I love to serve. So thanks again.